I expect you all are surprised to see each other here as well. First of all, people can sort of sit on the floor and gather around or whatever as long as the center aisle is kept open. So if anybody feels very comfortable about curling up here, there's a little bit of floor space. Is that right? Okay. Just, just so the center aisle is kept open. It gives me extraordinary pleasure under these circumstances to welcome all of you to what I'm surprised to discover is the seventh in a series of discussions, symposia, panels, whatever, on the subject of publishing in the 80s. We had thought originally that one such evening would cover it all, and we're quite, quite taken aback to discover that there were endless avenues that had not been pursued. So we went on then to do the small details. We took on the history, we took on sales, publicity, subsidiary rights, trade paperback publishing. And in each of those occasions, incidentally, we just found that it became a huge world and smaller, smaller portions needed discussion and maybe eventually we'll get into smaller and smaller discussions. But tonight what we want to do is answer the people who say, oh wow, everything's terrific, I've sold my book. All my worries are over. I have a publisher now. Uh, we hope there's no one here who will be too disillusioned right at the start, but in fact, this may be the beginning of one's problem. What we want to talk about is how and why that is the case and how it might not be <coughs> or why it's inevitably so. What we want to get into is what are considered the self-fulfilling prophecies that everybody bandies about. Is it true that certain decisions are taken at a very early stage that mean a book's fate is sealed regardless of anything that can happen from then on? As for the title of this program, you've all noticed perhaps on your chairs that a very fortuitous coincidence occurred that after we set the title, Will this be book be published or published? Michelle Slung, in her Washington Post Book World column, took on exactly that topic. So I trust everybody has some notion of what we mean by privished. And there's one line in that, actually, that says a decision is taken not to put any sort of promotional effort into a book. I don't have it in front of me, but, but you'll see it somewhere in about the second paragraph. We're not here really to discuss the kind of privishing, if it is the case, that happened with Jerry Zilg's book. We're not here to talk about what happened with Deborah Davis's book that you probably saw in today's Times, the, the settlement about the Catherine Graham book. Those are special cases. This is not to say that no one at Penn or anyone in the audience even isn't concerned about that. But what we want to take on are the usual cases, the kinds of books that anybody here might have written, might yet write might read. We will also not probably want to get into the Dodd-Mead case, again, because it doesn't speak directly to the general approach to deciding how to promote a book. Part of uh, what comes after this author has lost innocence in the pleasure of having a book sold is 
my publisher did nothing for my book. This, this is an underlying theme of what's going to go on here tonight. And what that is, is something that you might call it might be called it's going to be a way for people to see the process in effect to the best that we can simulate it here as if each of these people was a member of one single publishing company. But before I, before I introduce the smiling panelists, <laughs> I would like to remind everybody that, that we have been extremely fortunate. And when I say we, I say Penn as an organization, which we are all familiar with. And I say we as the committee in one form or another. It has had various names, various guises from season to season. It has had sometimes eight members but mostly two, and uh, I have to confess I'm one of them, but the other one who deserves an extraordinary amount of credit is Sarah Blackburn. So when, I, when we say we, if there's anybody you want to argue with, it's Sarah and me. But what we've been fortunate in all of these panels is finding people who have the interest and concern to come and talk to writers. Are, these are people who have writerly concerns. They are, it should go without saying, not the types who consider the writer the enemy. And in fact, there are multitudes of such types in publishing. Anybody who comes here, uh, in fact, anybody who's ever tried to get participants in any event that pays as little as this does, which is zero, or that <laughs> Didn't you have dinner? <laughs> Anybody knows that it is not an easy thing to do, and we're always extremely grateful to the people who are willing to come here, willing to be seen by writers. And this particular group, as it happens, is made up of all first draft choices. That's the truth. Each person here was selected specially because he or she was, was the one we wanted to sit here. And they have all come, and they're all here, and we're very, very happy that they are. And so I, I hope that that is received in that spirit. And this is not because these are not the busy people in publishing. These are as busy as anybody who has never returned your phone calls. But they care. And that, that must be understood now while the discussion is going on, and later, I hope, when questions are raised. And we will be taking questions. The charade that we're going to play is an attempt to show how it is. It's not how it should be, not how it might be, not, alas, even how it used to be. I do, by the way, have a few copies of a in sort of interview, a chopped up interview that U.S. News and World Report did with Alfred Knopf that gives a bit of that nostalgia. And, and a nostalgia I trust that everybody here feels to some extent. But, but we're not even going to do that. The idea is that these people are all operating within systems that exist here and now. These are not systems that these people created. 
They may like them, they may not. They may think they're just or not. They may think they're efficient or not. But we're not going to talk about how those systems came to be. We're not going to talk about why they are there, who owns them, et cetera, et cetera. This is not a, a discussion of conglomeratization. This is not to talk about why. We're here to talk about how. And these players are, are selected because the departments that they represent are all crucial to the decision that, that makes a book's destiny. We have a publisher who is, in, in effect, the ultimate decision maker. In this case, we have Peter Mayer, who is the chief executive of the Penguin Group in London, was formerly the publisher of Avon and of Pocket Books, and the founder of Overlook Press. Peter is sitting to the left of the empty space. We have a publicity director who more or less assesses the prospects of media and personal exposure and then has to go about executing these. Tonight we have Carol Schneider, the director of publicity at Random House, who feels as if she has been doing publicity for a lifetime <laughs> and has the experience to bear that out. This is Carol right here. We have a subsidiary rights director who assesses the prospects a book has of income from book clubs, from reprinters, and other sources, and conducts the sales of these rights. We have, sitting to Peter's left, Irene Skolnick, the director of subsidiary rights at Harcourt Brace Yovanovitch, who was, incidentally, for those of you who may have been here before or who have read the Penn Newsletter, the most extraordinarily successful moderator of a panel we have had to date, and that was the subsidiary rights panel. We have also a sales director who is in the position of having to predict how many copies will be sold in bookstores, and who runs a department that takes the orders and keeps the accounts in stock. Mark Levine sitting at the far other end is the director of sales at Grove, was formerly, actually recently, the National Accounts Manager at Putnam. Ma national Accounts Manager means that he sells directly to the chains and wholesalers. So a great deal of his experience is that form of relevant. And we have a marketing director, a position that seems to be different in every house, and I don't know exactly uh, how our marketing director of the evening would describe his job, I would say probably in thumbnail that it is orchestrating the efforts of all the rest of the people and overseeing the conjunction of sales and publicity, most precisely, but he will correct me if I'm wrong, he is Roger Strauss III, who wishes no further introduction. Now I, as uh, some people may already know, and. Faith Sale. I am an editor at Putnam's, a house where editors do not attend the marketing, launch, planning, whatever meetings. Uh, perhaps, I don't know if, if the, what the policy was based on, but in many houses, an editor is regarded as the advocate of any given book and therefore perhaps a biased viewpoint, whatever. I am here in the role of the advocate of the books that we will be discussing, 
we have created, the same we that I referred to earlier, several <coughs> books. These are utterly made up, fantastic books. Irene coined the term at her sub rights panel of confabularios. These books do not exist in the world, real world. Any coincidence to any books living or dead is purely coincident, any resemblance, et cetera, et cetera. These are made up books. They do not exist in the world. There will inevitably be some echoes, some similarities, because that's how books are. But these are made up, not real books. So my role in this will be, in effect, that of fly on the wall. But uh, every now and then I may buzz around to annoy the other people. But essentially, this will be a discussion among these five people on the books that I will present to them so that we may see the process, so that we may eavesdrop on their meeting. Okay, we'll talk closer, and everybody has a mic, so we'll all talk close in. The books that we're going to be talking about, these made-up confabulations, are going to be what one might call written books, hardcover only, the kinds of books that are sold in bookstores, trade books. We will not be talking about picture books, young adult books, cookbooks, poetry, how-to, Garfield, which has probably become a category on its own, or indeed any category fiction such as romances. What? Creepin, if you like. <laughs> no, but that kind of thing. Sci no, no science fiction, joke books, and so on and so on. We're talking, we will have four books, and the assumption is that everyone here at this meeting has read them. In fact, no one here tonight has heard a word about them before. But this is their opportunity to become the actors that they have probably longed to be. Book number one, book called Somewhere Else by Matthew Green. It is a first novel about a young man, a freelance journalist, who is working out his relationship with his powerful father, partner in a giant Park Avenue law firm. This is a book on which we have already gotten quotes from Bernard Malamud, Donald Barthelme, <laughs> Joyce Carol Oates, Anne Beattie, why indeed. <laughs> uh, Carol has done a little bit of work before this meeting and she has had signs of considerable interest from Mike Levitas with virtually every assurance that the New York Times Book Review will be doing a review 
and Walter Clemens, now that he's happily back at Newsweek, says that he will be looking at this one very carefully with a possible eye to reviewing it. <coughs> so guys, what are we going to do with this one? is scheduled, it is bought, it is uh, in bound galleys. Well, things are going very well. Well, what do you think? What, how many copies might we print for our first printing of this book? Just a couple of questions. Is this before or after sales tax? Before this sales is before sales tax. Yeah. So we're preparing maybe to go to sales tax. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, this is going to be the publisher's decision, but uh, uh, I think this is going to be the publisher's decision. <laughs> There's not much sound in the front either. <laughs> <laughs> first question I think that has to be answered is how aggressive a position the House is going to take. I mean, one, one of the things that is in all of your mind, justifiably, uh, is the whole aspect of self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, and particularly with fiction, particularly with fiction with a, a young writer, a first novelist, the whole business of how aggressive a position you take is extraordinarily important. Um, frequently, uh, in the places that I've worked, and there have been dozens, uh, that decision is based on readings among the House, in the House. Well, and we've all read this book now. And so I think the, the first pr thing is how do we all feel about it? How do we like it? Particularly the publisher, since he's paying our salaries. Well, I suppose one of the first qu uh, things that um, a publisher has to have, uh, and very frequently they don't have, uh, is some ability to understand what the feelings in the House are. Um, so I take it from what Faith has said uh, is that the book's been widely read in the House uh, and is liked. Uh, people feel strongly about it. Uh, it's got some good quotes. And uh, um, before I say any more, I'd like to know whether the, um, I guess it is the marketing and sales departments have sent it out to the reps as well um, and what the feeling has been from people who have to introduce something that is very difficult, a first novel, um, into bookshops who, as we know, are very, very wary of that animal. Why are they wary of it, do you think? Um, I think in the case of the chains, and it's even hard to uh, make um, broad statements about the chains, but one does, and I suppose one has to, uh, they base a lot of uh, their thinking on previous performance, and so they just as soon wait uh, on a first novel or very modestly represent it. Uh, I think I was told in the case of uh, the White Hotel, which uh, uh, Viking published, uh, that although there was enormous sentiment within the house for the book, I think the change took something uh, on the order of 18 or 118 copies. And uh, that was a book that the house itself was backing. So I think uh, we can take it as a given that uh, on a first novel, the chains are going to be uh, extremely cautious about it, and even when you get down to the 
independent bookstores, um, I think you will find uh, modest representation unless something has happened to the reps mm. themselves, because I think uh, reps can call out a favor uh, when uh, they have to. They can't call out too many favors, but they can call out some. So I really want to know what do the reps feel themselves? And um, I, I, I think that's a, a terribly important question. A publishing company, I don't think, can back every book, much as uh, I suppose every writer would like every book backed by the house. It just isn't likely to happen. Well, that's what we're here to decide tonight about this book. Is the house going to back it? Mark, what sort of response have you gotten from your well, reps? Let us say that I'm enthusiastic enough to risk the chance of sending it to the sales reps they are enthusiastic enough about it that they've asked the galley that they are going to give to some of their important buyers, hoping that in spite of some of the disadvantages we've discussed, that their buyers will like it enough and sense something about it that will dictate to them that this has some attraction to the, uh, to the consumers. Um, but the, rep the reports we're getting, as we get all too often, are that in spite of my enthusiasm and the reps' enthusiasm, that the book buyers, and not the consumers, but the people who do the buying for the stores, while they like it, are themselves wary and are not sure that, that the book is going to uh, convert into sales and are being cautious. I think Peter's example is possibly somewhat extreme, a book with this type of support in-house and these types of quotes will not be ordered in the numbers we discussed by Dalton and Walden, but probably in numbers of less than a thousand, certainly. And the formula that, that translates out into is a print run of somewhere less than 10,000. Well, if we're doing a print run of somewhat less than 10,000, we've paid $5,000 advance for this book. How much then have we spent on this book so far? We have, a we have plant costs, we have printing, binding, and all sorts of other costs that have gone into this. To what extent do we put more money behind <coughs> it? What, what is our position? Well, I'm going to shift in favor of this book, which is to say to appropriate some marketing monies for this book, perhaps more than is usual, if the sales manager says to me the reps like the book and uh, really have given him or her an undertaking uh, to place um, a sufficient number of copies so that, in fact, marketing makes sense. One of the great difficulties is that marketing monies ca uh, cannot be spent very well if they're not books all over the place. Uh, so one has to start with the feeling that one's going to get an adequate distribution. Uh, and uh, the feeling of the sales manager, based on what he's heard from the reps, is terribly important. Um, uh, we've started out with quotes. Uh, we've started out with what we take to be um, an interesting story. I take it it's accessible, which is a, uh, uh, a very important question, which uh, uh, we haven't really uh, spoken to, because uh, uh, from the quotes, I guess it's literary. Uh, I take it that it's readable. Uh, we're going to have copies out there. I'm going to ask Irene, um, do you think we're going to get some money in from paperback houses? Do you think we're going to get some money in from, uh, some money in from book clubs? Uh, are we going to be able to partly amortize the plant by finding an English publisher? What's your sense? Oh, right. 
Um, do we have, what kind of rights do we have on this book, Chris? Do um, we have world, do we, world in English rights? Do we have translation rights? No, the agent is holding the world rights and English rights. Mm -hmm. Just, just Grenada we have here. Grenada, right. yes, yeah. our biggest market. <laughs> no, we, we have paperback and book club rights. And that's about it. Um, well, uh, since mm. this is a launch meeting, then I want to share with you some of my concerns. I, I, we had tremendous in-house enthusiasm for this book, and um, I really pushed it at the clubs. <coughs> and unhappily, <laughs> even with all the, this, these flotilla of quotes from Malamud and Oates and Bartholomew, I haven't yet been able to nudge any offers from Book of the Month Club or the Guild. However, Book of the Month Club has suggested to me that they might want to take it for quality paperback book club. And I'm a little concerned about just taking what really is negligible money, $2,500, um, and wondering how it might jeopardize my chances for reprint. Um, you mean because I there are paperback houses that won't bid on a book that has been made into a sort of paperback by quality book A paperback book. original. Um, I've had expressions of interest from paperback houses uh, because the, the, the quotes to date are so impressive, but I haven't had, it's basically a kind of we like the book, but we want to wait and watch. So I can't really, I Peter, answer you wait and watch. I can't I promise you right now that I could bring you a lot of other income. I think that's the key. I think we're in some ways horsing around here because what we're fooling with at the moment is a book that's about to sell 4,000 copies. England is important. Uh, <coughs> and I think what's very important, what the House really has to decide, and in some ways what the author and agent have to decide as partners in this, <coughs> is what is one's real expectations and what is realizable. Uh, there is no question in the case of first fiction that everyone is watching the publishing house, that it's all a, you know, a, a tremendous waiting game and everyone's waiting for the first break. Now, occasionally that first break will come and Irene will get a club, the literary guild will love it and uh, you'll get a featured alternate or a strong buy uh, or a major foreign sale, although that's not that useful d domestically. But usually what's going to hap have to happen with the first novel is the house is going to have to get out front. Uh, and I think the only way to do that is to position the book in a very aggressive way. Uh, there are that act is fraught with difficulties. Uh, one is obviously if you're wrong, you're going to lose a great deal of money. Could you define your terms? Yeah, I think, I think you're going to have to print twenty to 25,000 copies and spend a dollar a book in advertising and promotion. That isn't a super aggressive position, but that's enough, I think, to make uh, the chains take some interest in what's going on. That's enough to make some of the people that Irene's dealing with, although they're not going to drop dead over twenty. Really? Is that the sound or the English? Both. <laughs> We're in real trouble. <laughs> uh, but some sort of an aggressive position, and I think the one I've mentioned, which is a twenty to 25,000 copy first printing and a dollar a book 
marketing promotion is going to be necessary. Now, if that fails, the losses are going to be very large. And if it fails and the House does that continually, you're going to be in big trouble because you're in a cry-wolf situation. And if the chains, because you are printing 25,000 copies, come in and, let's say, take 2,000 each, uh, don't sell the books. If the independents have bad success, the, na the next time you come back with playing the same game, it's going to be much harder to do it. And I think what we're going to have to do up here on this book is decide whether or not this book has that kind of potential. If it doesn't, do we and the author feel comfortable with a book that is very likely to sell four or 5,000 copies? Well, Carol, what are you then going to do with this book that you have considerable review interest in? Do you think that, that because we are from this house, that it is harder or easier for you to put it across to the review people? Well, if this house is a house with a reputation for quality fiction, it's going to be a lot easier. That does make a big difference. A first novel from a house that doesn't distinguish itself particularly in fiction is not going to get as much attention as one from a house that has a track record that people can point to. I would say that if, in fact, I have promises or near promises from Newsweek and the Times Book Review, I'm in very good shape to begin with because my experience, I think all of our experience, is that those books that are reviewed prominently by the major publications, those first novels, those reviews tend to be followed by smaller publications, by out-of-town press. If we get the big stuff, we're going to get the small stuff later on. And if it's a book that, in fact, we all are enthusiastic about and can genuinely recommend, and here credibility is a factor just as it is in sales, I can't go out to reviewers and time and again say I have the most wonderful first novel if, in fact, I don't feel that because sooner or later people are going to stop believing me. Mm -hmm. on, on the publicity front, there's a question. From the description of the book, it sounded like this uh, work might be somewhat autobiological. Is that true? Uh, and is the author promotable if he uh, has famous relatives that he's saying interesting things about? You could not regard this as a Romain Clay. No, it, ha it touches on certain universal themes. Mm -hmm. every, every son has a father and, and but I would usually regards him as powerful in some I way. would say in that respect, the subject works <laughs> against it because it's a subject we've heard and come across many, many times. This is going ha to have to be a very distinguished piece of writing. Or it's going to have to have it is, it is very high quality prose. Because certainly as the subject does not add anything new to the list of subjects in fiction. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh. And in fact, from a publicity standpoint, the only, the best thing we can do for the house is to see that that writer gets reviewed and noticed and becomes a name and perhaps build his reputation for future books. In this case, we maybe have to con concentrate less on what we're going to sell on this book and concentrate more on how we're going to develop that writer as a writer whom the House will want to publish and who will have increasingly successful books in the course of his career. Is that what we all feel as the reason for why we are publishing this book? I mean, the dire predictions would suggest that one might not bother. It, are we looking to attract other quality writers? Are we looking to build the careers of serious writers or this particular young man? Well, I'm, I'm sure we all want to answer yes to that, but I think actually Carol asked uh, or spoke to some very, very important questions, and they go beyond uh, the book uh, itself. Uh, 
It may not exactly have to do with uh, the promotability of the author, but one of the things one wants to know about the author, and the editor is very, very important in order uh, that we get a good insight into him as, uh, or her, as uh, someone who uh, is going to uh, write on a regular basis. Uh, uh, we want to know if this first novel is the result of some years of writing short stories, of some broad exposure to literary magazines and perhaps some more general magazines uh, uh, like The Atlantic. Uh, we want to know, uh, uh, are we going to make an investment here and we won't see another novel for five years? Uh, one of the things that we hope is that uh, somebody will write on a regular basis. But Irene raised the question of QPBS, and I know what I'd tell her. I'd say grab it right away. Don't worry about the mass market house. Uh, they may or may not buy it, but we want to get something going for this author. And uh, one of the important things in either selling mass market rights or selling books into bookshop, bookstores, uh, or getting review attention is to be able to have something to say. So this is the first thing that has happened to this book uh, um, the fact that QBBS will make a modest offer, it's the first thing that you can say to your reps, it's the first thing you can say to reviewers, it's the first thing you can say to paperback houses, and I would take it right away and not worry about the money. I also would assume with these reviews that one would get an English publication and that a large portion of the plant cost uh, uh, w uh, would be returned to the house. Uh, if I felt that the editor uh, was right or uh, that uh, uh, we knew enough about the author to feel that uh, we were likely to see another book in two years, let us say, um, uh, I think we start becoming more bullish about this book and increasing our expectations. Uh, this is not necessarily yet deciding what we're going to spend on the book, but it is getting a lot closer to deciding how many copies we're going to print. How many is that? Well, at the moment, I would have thought something like 12,500 based on these things happening. And that is really quite a bullish view uh, on a first novel because nothing really great has happened to it yet. We've just got signed from within the house and a small offer from QBBS. But unless well, you start somewhere, uh, you're not likely to finish anywhere. Somebody said, I don't know if it was up here or, or down there, somebody said, and quotes. What value do you think those quotes have? Anybody, anybody. Some. I mean, what you're always looking for, particularly with the first novel, is breaks. Is something, someone, an individual, an organization like a club, uh, who shares your enthusiasm. Uh, also, if you are planning to advertise, uh, and it sounds like that's what a good part of, the part of the marketing money is going to be spent on, the quotes will obviously be very valuable, particularly from the sources we've got, which are very good. Marketing money, if any. None has been committed here yet. Faith, I'm a little, I'm, I'm just curious. You really did um, a splendid job in getting all of these quotes, but how were they? How, how, I'd like how, to how were they too. obtained? And exactly. Maybe was, shouldn't was we think, maybe, like that? should we think more, maybe wouldn't Joyce Carol Oates be a better reviewer for this book I was rather just, than I was just putting it that. on the book jacket? I mean, you don't uh, want to preempt all of your potential big name reviewers by yeah. using them all for quotes. I mean, what, you know, how did you get all these quotes? As you're the editor, why don't you 
Well, these were people who had read this man's work before. Actually, he was in one of Malamud's classes, and I think Bartholomew was a judge for one of the contests that this man entered. <laughs> uh, Joyce Carol Oates had been following the literary magazines quite closely and had seen his work, so we sent her a copy of the manuscript. But do you think we might sort of suggest to her that she might review it rather than using this quote on the jacket? Do you mean would the editor suggest that to her? Um, I mean, might that not be something that would come out of this launch meeting? Um, what do we have these quotes? What are we going to do with them? Are we going to slap them on the back of the jacket or? It's a little late for that now, but we'll try to get some of them on the back of the jacket. I mean, they if we're not going to do substantial. Oh, you mean none of these quotes are going on the jacket? Yes, yeah, a couple of them will be on the jacket. But, but it would have cost a lot of money to pull back the blues of the jacket to put on two more quotes. Well, it's a spiral that we're in. The, the, the quotes on the back of the jacket are not going to be read by the consumer unless if the book gets displayed in the stores. And the book is not going to get displayed in the stores if we're diddling around at print runs of 10,000 or possibly even 12,000. On the other hand, if the quotes might mean the likelihood of some very serious review attention, whether from Joyce Carol Oates or from somebody not necessarily with the name of that stature but who writes for a medium of, of some stature, then people at the chains, at the independent bookstores, assuming the likelihood of review attention, are likely to be a little bit more friendly to us. And then there are ways further of fueling that friendship. There are ways, if we are behind this author, and if it is somebody who's going to become an important author to the house, there are ways of assuring a certain amount of display. There are in-house vehicles at the chains, which cost money to advertise in, but which publishers with budgets will advertise in. In the parlance of our industry, that buys us a little real estate. And instead of getting one or two copies of the book spine out in Dalton, we get it up front and displayed where people can see the blurbs on the book. And then I guess we're talking about a little different kettle of fish from what we've been talking about. Let me raise a, an extremely unpleasant question. Uh, 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 do we have a strong list this spring, or do we have a weak list this spring? What are the other books, books that we're publishing? Right. Uh, the author may not uh, like this question very much, but I suspect in many publishing houses, either spoken or unspoken, uh, uh, that's one of the issues as well. Uh, what kind of a list do we have this spring? We're weak in fiction. Well, that gives that book uh, sort of an added chance because if we don't have too many books that are strong in this area, we certainly want to be known for the fiction we publish. This is a good book. Uh, that starts to make us rather more excited about one of the two or three exceptional novels on uh, a list that isn't very strong in fiction. Faith, were you able to get an option on uh, this author's next book? Because a lot of the reprinters have been asking me yes. what he's working on next. It seems to we me Matthew Green did write <laughs> A Warmer Place. Well. <laughs> <laughs> that was just a test. <laughs> um, this is a different Matthew Green. This Matthew Green has an E on the end of his name. <laughs> How old is Matthew Green? He's 29. How long has he been working on this book? Well, it is his first novel, and he has been writing since he was in college. But he does say that he is hard at work on his next novel. What, what's his next novel about? He didn't really want to talk about that too much. <laughs> <laughs> 
perhaps you'd like to hear another fiction item on our list. This one is called Big Deals. The author is that very well-known writer of big commercial novels, Jackie Cortland. <laughs> this one is about the fortunes of a beautiful, smart woman radical of the 60s. Now, 20 years later, she is the head of a major Hollywood studio, and she's engaged in a volcanic love affair with the head of another studio, <laughs> who was in her SDS chapter. Is she a flat cop? <laughs> <laughs> They were not lovers those, in those days, but they were political allies. The book, of course, is filled with cocaine, the buying and selling and using of cocaine with... Perfect bound in the book. <laughs> <laughs> with certain surprising people involved, not just in the use, but in the sale. It, this one is a Romana play, and uh, the author is so well known that, that this will be discussed in the columns on both coasts. This author has been on the bestseller list with her previous books. This is the first one of hers that we're doing. What will we do with this one? We spent, by the way, $250,000 hardcover for this book. Hardcover only. Hardcover only. We're a hardcover house. We yeah. are a hardcover house. Well, I have good news for you. I, I, this is a dual <laughs> main selection at the Literary Guild. <laughs> I was a little worried when you said SDS, but as soon as you started talking about the cocaine, I you know, It's okay. I'd like to know what the author's last book sold. How many copies actually in print? Well, you know, it's sometimes hard to get these figures out of other houses. <laughs> this is our first book with this author. Oh, I'm sure uh, the agent will have told us when uh, the book was sold to us. <laughs> well, yes, what the agent said. The agent said 120,000 copies. Ah. Well, the first thing that uh, I think we all have to agree on this committee on this, uh, at this meeting is that we're going to have a much larger figure, uh, because we'll lose this author again. Uh, that, agent, that agent moves this author around quite regularly, <laughs> and uh, uh, we're going to have to outperform Company X, um, and I don't think by a little, but by a lot. And the SDS. Um, <laughs> that's right. So uh, I think we really ought to be able to. Uh, uh, we're geared up for it. Uh, we also need the business right now. We ought to be able to do at least 50% better than Company X. So you're talking about netting 180,000 copies. 170,000 copies. That's mm -hmm. right. I think the big first question is, is what's the easiest way to get there? Do you print 150,000 copies out of a box and try to get out over 100,000 copies? Or do you print a smaller number, get fewer copies in the field? I think Mark will agree that this is an, we can do pretty much what we want with this book. Uh, get a smaller number of copies in the field, get a very strong reorder pattern going, and hope we can jam it on the bestseller list very fast. And I think that's an important initial question. What do you mean by jam it on the bestseller list? <laughs> uh, there's been a lot of discussion about how scientific bestseller lists are. Uh, they're not, uh, mostly because of the source, uh, with the exception of the chains and now a, a few smaller chains, 
uh, very few stores have accurate records of what they're selling. Uh, so the sense of what's happening is, is somewhat subjective. Uh, if two stores each sell 20 copies of a book, uh, store A sold 25 copy, uh, bought 25 copies initially and sells the 20 and you go in and say, how did the book do? They're probably going to say, it was okay. We were a little disappointed. We expected something better. Store B orders 10 copies initially um, and then reorders twice, let's say, for the same total of 25, sells the same 20. You come in and say, how did you do with the book? They'll say, great, we couldn't keep it in stock. We were reordering it all the time. They've both sold 20 copies of the book. Uh, so there may be an advantage to advancing somewhat fewer copies uh, and developing a strong reorder pattern. And I think that's something the House has to decide. How does this relate, though, to jamming it on the bestseller list? I think if you, if, if you get that kind of a reorder we pattern. We sort of sell out mentality. Yeah. Well, one thing I think we have to agree uh, almost instantly is that uh, when the horse come out to play tennis, and as we are basically a literary house and doing this very big <laughs> commercial novel, we better win. <laughs> uh, nothing's worse than doing a book for commercial reasons and failing at it. So I think I do like Roger's idea of perhaps printing down, but I'm sure the marketing money should be up. Yes. Like what? I don't like the idea of printing down. I don't trust our production facilities. I don't trust our <laughs> warehouse, and I don't want to be in an out-of-stock situation on this book, which can turn the very positive situation you just described exactly around. And since the chains do have accurate reporting information, and since this sounds like a chain book, I would like to sock it in, rely on them to get accurate and high figures and get it on the bestseller list that way. I think we can get, if we talk to our production department, I think we can get a three-week turnaround on this and really see what is happening before we really risk a larger printing. We don't have to be out of stock. We, we can we print can extra jackets. We're going to do six different jackets anyway. In this is hardcover trade. In various shades of pink. <laughs> Mark, are you saying that you can more or less determine how many books the chains will buy from you? Within when you say sock it in in sufficient numbers or whatever the term you use. Within heard? certain boundaries. If this is a book, if this is a book that netted last this author's last book netted 120,000 copies, these things are obviously uncertain and so on, but projecting back the formula that I just described, that means that both of the major national chains sold somewhere between 10 and 15,000 copies of this book, and they are going to order this book commensurate to that experience. And they've hovered around five, six, eight, ten, something like that, when they were strongest. The agent would really like to see her get up into the top three. Indeed, we have no further chance with this author if we don't succeed in putting this book within the top three and keeping it there for several weeks. There's a specified number of weeks. How, how are we going to do that? How much would it cost um, if we did advanced reading copies to uh, get a word of mouth going in the industry? Do you think that's worthwhile? I don't think I, we need I, to. We I don't, don't think with to, an yeah. author that's, that's well known, it's necessary. 
may even be dangerous. No, I was just going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like an author who doesn't get reviewed well, sells like crazy, but gets terrible reviews. Well, actually, that's part of it, Carol, because the author, although she is a bit of a gadabout and, and a very powerful society person, does regard herself as a literary writer, and, and <laughs> the kind of reviews that we're able to that's get for her will be crucial. I, I, think we have, I think we need a contest. I think we need something special. I think we're going to run a contest. Uh, anyone who can correctly identify uh, the first six lovers in the book. You spend the rest of your what life are our in lawyers going to say about that? <laughs> Gets a trip to Grenada. <laughs> our lawyer is one of the group. <laughs> I think you have to veer the emphasis away from reviews to other kinds of publicity for that author. Do you think maybe yeah. we could get her to come to ABA? Do you think that would be useful, oh, she'd Carol? Love it. You couldn't keep her away from ABA. She'd love okay. it. She's what could be there she do for us at ABA? Um, with her track record, she can sign copies. She can walk around and talk to booksellers. She can drum up her own business. We can introduce her to some of the talk show people who are going to be there. Who, let's say, perhaps she, she hasn't she traveled come late in the to past. parties. Uh, it could be very useful to have her there. Because I think what we should concentrate on here is personal publicity for her. She yes. has a track record now. Um, Absolutely. Maybe she's never done a full-scale tour. This would be an opportunity to do that and deflect some of the attention away from the bad reviews. Suppose we do succeed in getting her on the list where she wants to be. What is this worth to us, actually? What, what sort of money does this bring into the house to do that well with a book? Well, that, 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 that figure is very open because what we haven't talked about is the enormous money that we can earn on this book from subsidiary rights. So the announcement of the marketing, uh, the publicizing of the marketing itself is really part of our campaign, I believe. And uh, Irene's figuring the right moment to uh, approach particularly the mass market houses is really very much part of the game in terms of what we will ultimately spend on the marketing itself. I think another thing we should add here, we, <coughs> we got this book at a bargain price. Uh, given this author's track record, uh, $250,000 is a steal. Uh, and I don't believe you could get an author who has this kind of track record for that kind of money. A real danger with this kind of book and with a lot of blockbusters is that they're losing money for the publisher because of the amount of the advance. I mean, this easily could be an author who in an auction situation, and this author's work certainly would be auctioned, someone could pay close to seven figures for. Well, her previous book sold for five and six hundred thousand. Irene, how will you make the decision about when to go after the research? Well, you've, you've told me that um, this is an author who's bounced around from hardcover houses. Uh, I'll probably exercise the moral option and go to the last paperback house she was published with. Has she also bounced around paperback houses? Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know. Basically, for this case. Uh, so, uh, I see. <laughs> well, that, that changes the, the picture somewhat. Um, do we know how she's performed at these various houses? Is there any way... Uh, <laughs> 
County. Do we have any idea? Okay, I'll make it really easy for you. I, you know, I have great news. Not only did <laughs> I sell it to the Literary Guild for $250,000 in a fierce bidding with Book of the Month Club, but I've ex I'd like to, Peter, if you think it's advisable, uh, and if you think so too, take um, a floor of $400,000 from uh, the house that published her last. Before, before the question is answered, do you want to give two words on what moral option means? Well, it doesn't sound like it applies to this author. <laughs> <but> <laughs> <laughs> well, well, quite simply, it, it means that in my, in my role, I would go to the paperback house that published her last, even though we were not the hardcover house that licensed the paperback rights to that reprinter. At, at this point, I think I would uh, uh, say to this group that uh, the problem with this book is that it virtually, uh, at least as I listen to you all, has no problems, uh, uh, <laughs> which is really not the way uh, things happen in publishing. Uh, the book is good, the author is promotable. No one said the book uh, was good. <laughs> good of its kind, <laughs> uh, good in its genre. It's uh, got a very, very large paperback floor. It's, uh, Have we accepted the floor? Uh, I well, think we're throwing it up. But it's, uh, it's, there, it's there to be taken. Um, but I have to let them know, like, right away, <laughs> if we're going to accept it. Say yes. No, uh, Peter, don't shake it. It's only a floor. <laughs> Yeah, um, but we're really, we're but really. The, the point that I would make <laughs> is that actually our, our, our biggest problem doesn't have to do with making this book a success. It looks like everything's going for it. The worst thing that could happen to us at this point, really, is that when the agent comes to us on the next book, some absolutely absurd number uh, is asked of us for book two. The agent has already mentioned that there are several people who are waiting to make so offers on her next book. I would be at this point going to the agent and trying, sight unseen, to buy book two for a figure that we know we can handle, and then we can really go to town on book one with some comfort that we'll next year have another big book by the same author. Right. Roger, why makes don't my you job much easier. Why, Roger, don't you want to accept the floor? Well, I think with all of the good things that are happening, and as uh, Peter said, this is a, an unusually bountiful situation, uh, even if we get some last moment auction jitters, that 400,000 or something close to it is a safe number. Uh, I think giving out a number of 400,000 positions the booker or leaves other people to think that that's the area you're thinking in. With all of the good things that are happening here, I think you could push for a much, much higher figure, particularly if we're now five years ago. Well, there's also the possibility that if the floor is too rich, it might scare off a lot of people, and uh, basically it will be a preemptive sale. Uh, I'd like it so that there were enough people in, you know, in it when I eventually auction it. I think it's, it's high, uh, it's exciting, it shows that um, we had real viable interest, but I don't think it's enough to scare off any serious people. I don't want it to be a buyout. What do you think? 
Uh, I'm sure I take it because as this novel is described, it's cotton candy. It must work in hardcover. It must work in paperback. And uh, everything about the author, everything uh, ab uh, about the plot line suggests that uh, it's the kind of book that mass market publishers need. They need five or six of them every year. So uh, I think uh, 400,000 still, as you say, lets people in, but uh, it certainly uh, tells us uh, all that we need to know uh, about how we're gonna go forward with this book. Uh, I still keep worrying much more than uh, the rest of the people uh, here uh, about book two. So uh, I we wanna- We can't know about book two until we see how she performs, or how we perform in putting her on the list, Peter. The agent will not consider a deal until that tale is told. Well, I, the reprinter's asking me if they have an option on the next book. Uh, we are not able to give that. Also I think one of the things, uh, uh, Faith, that we're going to tell the agent is that our performance, we won't put it so uh, boldly, but our performance on this masterpiece is heavily conditioned uh, on uh, our being able to buy book two now. Here, here. We made this deal, it's in the contract. That, that deal is in the contract. You agreed to it at the time that we signed the book up. What did we agree to? We, we agreed to the option being connected to the bestseller performance. Oh, one can always go back to the agent, and I'd certainly like to try, uh, because um, if we bought book one for $250,000, if we said 500000 now for book two, that might prove, in fact, to be quite inexpensive, at least in relationship to all the things that I'm hearing at this table. Well, we'll consult with him. Let me ask you just one other question. This book is about 500 pages, or will be about 500 book pages. What do you suppose we'll put on it as a cover price? Sorry? $10? Do I hear 12? No. $15.95. I think that's too high. <clears throat> I think it's just right. I think it's right, too. Um, if I could just step back for one minute to the question of Matthew Green, whose book was 192 pages. What are we going to be charging for that one? 1395. <laughs> <laughs> 1395. But um, I don't think the public blessedly buys books by weight. Uh, uh, um, but do they buy by price? They more, buy by price, but 1395. Uh, which certainly seems very expensive uh, in relationship to this blockbuster, which is 1595, actually is selling to a rather different market. Uh, and 1395 is not an exceptionally high price at all for people who are in the habit of buying series books. They can practically not buy a series book for less than that anyway. That covers our fiction list. Oh, wait, I wanted oh, to ask sorry. you something. Have Gentlemen. we decided yet <laughs> what kind of jacket we're going to be doing for big deals? And what kind of jacket did we do for somewhere else? Did we just that do- That was a kind of muted tones, uncoded stock. For not too representational. Somewhere else, <laughs> somewhere else. yes. yes. So I, I, I really like it to be a sort of sexy mass market jacket for um, big deals. Do you think that would be consistent with our image? <laughs> for this book, absolutely. Whatever our image is at this house um, that we have. Do you want this at. foil stamp? Do you want it, uh, do you it, want it embossed? Something slick and I mean, shiny. I mean, do you think that will make a difference? What do you, what do you feel about that, Mark? Gold foil embossed. <laughs> I, 
I'm not sure about that because uh, sometimes uh, a book that is really schlocky, and this certainly sounds to be uh, uh, top of the heap there, uh, I think actually sometimes you do not want to uh, uh, present the book that way. You in fact want to present the book uh, in a much more sedate way because there's going to be lots of other things that uh, are telling people what this book is. So you don't want to demean this book, which uh, uh, in principle demeans itself. <laughs> you misunderstood me. What I, what I meant was gold foil embossed with taste. <laughs> We're running a little low on taste, actually. I, think. I don't think you want to misrepresent it. I think it's a mistake to package it as something it isn't. Let's try two different jackets. I thought you said six. Wasn't that the one you said? We're cutting back. Can we do that? Sure. Can we afford to do that? Sure. How expensive would that be? Not very much with this kind of a press run. Which, of course, we have not yet yes. set. What do we, you know, um, I, I think Mars pushes to 100,000. And, and you'll live with that, Roger? Yeah, I'll live. Are you talking about one plane and one flashy, or two different, yeah. com two completely different approaches? Sure. I'd be very unhappy with that, Roger. Boy, that I seems think so would I. Yeah. I think what we ought to do, one of the things that we do when we spend our marketing monies is to make one image uh, the image that we are putting all of our monies behind. Now, uh, in the paperback world, uh, th there's a different argument for different uh, covers frequently, and that is to get additional displays. But uh, we're quite sure that uh, uh, whether we go along with Mark and we print up, or whether we're a bit more conservative and spend the money, uh, monies on marketing, we're going to get this book pretty well displayed anyway. So what we want to establish, I think, with our advertising is one image that everybody uh, uh, finds is instantly recognizable rather than to partly dissipate the energy. I think that's fine if you're sure of your approach, but it sounds like we've got some uh, doubts here. But and it might be, I don't think we're doing enough experimenting, and this might give us a chance because this is certainly a book we're going to go back to press with to find out which approach is working the best. But don't we need a unified house approach? How, how do you do your ads? You do one series of ads with one jacket and one with the other? I don't think that's a terrible idea, particularly if you've got this kind of a budget. I just think you're dissipating the effect you're going to have. You're going to, you're splitting that budget into two in effect. What is the budget actually? What is the budget on this book? Seems almost inconceivable that you wouldn't spend at least $100,000 right. on this book. I and hope so, because that's what I told everybody. <laughs> you should have told them twice that. You don't want to make me a liar. <laughs> How will that 100000 be spent? We feel that uh, we don't really want reviews, and if we get reviews, they're not going to be very good. Uh, I think it's going to be divided between author tours and advertising almost exclusively. And unfortunately, she always stays in the best hotels and it's always first Limousines. class. And a lot of food is sent up from downstairs. <laughs> so, so what will we be spending, really, on schlepping her around the country? <laughs> Well, you've told me uh, that uh, Company X, who published her last book, was able to make very, very good use uh, of her in talk shows and so on. And uh, in fact, the cost of taking her around really is quite modest in relationship to the cost of advertising. We've got to do a lot of advertising, but uh, I, I think uh, splitting it between publicity uh, and advertising is almost the only way to go. Absolutely I mean, half and right. half. 
You're talking about spending $50,000 on publicity? I wouldn't have said half and half. But <laughs> well, no, the way you said split. That's what I'm trying to get you to tell us how you would do Did I hear that right? <laughs> I have a $50,000 budget? You're getting, no, no, you're getting a limo, $25,000 would take her almost anywhere. That's right. And seventy-five on advertising. Sounds what, good. What, what could we get for $75,000 in advertising? Not as much as you think. Like what? Uh, first of all, are we going all print, or are we going to go print and radio? With 75000 you can't even think about television. I think it sounds like print and radio. I uh, don't think we need the television, Roger, because I think we're going to get her on a lot of uh, talk shows absolutely, on television. Absolutely. So I think uh, pr print, and I'm not even sure about radio. Suppose, <laughs> suppose we did do it all in print. What could we get for $75,000 in space advertising? What would you be thinking? You really want to schedule? Well, I. Do people want to hear this? Yeah. I you, thought so. You could get full page ads in six to seven major newspapers around the country. Are you talking about daily papers or Sunday book reviews? A full reviews? page ad in the, in the New York Times book review with, produ with production runs over $9,000. We're going to have to spend a lot of money on co op, don't you think, Roger? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, co op meaning? Also, don't forget about the party. <laughs> oh, yes, that's listen to your Carol. budget. That's coming out of your 25. Carol, I have good news for you. <laughs> Women, I knew there was a, a hitch to this. Carol, no, listen. I know somebody at Women's Wear who wants to co-host a party with us. What do you think about that? In her apartment? Yes. That sweetens it immediately. Okay. I what? think if she has the kind of connections that it sounds like she has, uh, a party would be a very good idea. If she has famous friends, if she's well known herself, if this is li likely to be a party that's going to get written up, then it makes very good sense to do that. That's, that's why Women's Wear wants to co-host it. And in any case, we have no choice because she's going to expect a party. That's true. What will we spend on that party? Well, it depends on what we can spend. We can easily spend. Well, what, what do you feel we will have to spend on the party? Hmm. got a lot of friends. <laughs> Sounds like... Uh, it's it's got to be a, in the $5,000 range, I would think. So Three that's, to five, yeah. Okay, that shaves a bit off your budget. Uh, <laughs> Roger, you made a, a reference to co-op advertising. Do you want to explain a, that for a minute? A co-op ad is a, an ad in principle where you are sharing the ad with the bookstore. In practice now, most co-op is done at 100%, meaning the publisher pays for the entire ad. Uh, but, this, but you avail yourself <coughs> of the store's line rate, which is usually a, a local line rate in the newspaper, and lower than the publisher's rate. So you mean an ad that we see in the paper for a book that says under B. Dalton, or right. something like that. That is a co-op ad. That's correct. And the publisher has paid for it, but paid for it at a lower rate. That's correct. And that argues with us by saying that 1595 is too much for this book, so I priced it at 1142. <laughs> <laughs> Are we going to pay for that, too? Oh, yes. <laughs> you bet. I worry a lot about co-op money. Uh, does anybody here think that we can go way over budget there because there are some legal risks uh, implicit in co-op advertising, which maybe not everybody knows about? Roger, do you want to? Perhaps mention that? Yeah. Uh, I hope that we've uh, reminded everyone that we have a cap, uh, that uh, we have a maximum 
of $7,500 for any one account, because if we don't have a cap, uh, it's going to get really crazy. Uh, even with the cap, uh, we could start running into big problems. And I think one of the ways we may try to control it is insist that for 100%, uh, the store use our ads. Uh, first of all, that does give us some control over the kind of advertising we're doing. When you say our ad, you mean an ad that we have <coughs> That composed. we have created, yeah. Rather than one that they do themselves and just ask us to approve. That's right. In, in, in those cases, there's frequently no approval, and you'll see <coughs> book not real huge, or the book murder in the family in six-point yeah, type. Oh, it's <coughs> big deal. Big deal. Yeah. <coughs> I, I think we mustn't let our non-fiction list languish in all of this. I mean, it's kind of fun to do that kind of big fiction book, and I wish us all the best of luck in getting to be number one. And I hope Peter <laughs> gets that second instead. <laughs> On the nonfiction list, we're really quite excited about a book called Murder in the Family by Nick Romano. The author is a, a former New York Times investigative reporter. This is a true crime story. This rather chilling tale of an Ivy League sophomore who, <laughs> who came home on spring vacation. You remember the story because it, it made uh, quite a bit of headlines stage oh, in the New York Times. Yeah. In fact, Nick Romano was the one who covered it. He then left his job to go up and write the book because there was so much fascinating detail that he couldn't get into in covering it as a news story. Is he a Scorpio? Me <laughs> too. <laughs> At any rate, this, this young man went home for spring vacation and got into a rather terrible struggle with his father, a prominent industrialist. Too many fathers on Another this list, father I'm afraid. Son. Yes, no. yes. Oh. Next thing anybody knew, the father was found dead of gunshot wounds. Nobody else was home at the time because the mother was away visiting the other child in the family, her daughter, who is a nun, and who is cooperating. <laughs> the n she is cooperating with the author of the book. It's a very gripping story, <laughs> brought with psychological insights. We're looking for first serial in the New York Times Magazine. It's not definite, but he was always in considerable favor there. This is his first book, but he's quite well known, as you know, as a reporter. We paid $75,000 for this book. It was a kind of heated auction. Well, we were up against it, and we really I thought that this one had it. us. <laughs> you remember that, Irene. You said go. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, in fact, if you recall, you got a major book club to guarantee $25,000. Oh, I got what? You got a guarantee, a minimum of $25,000 for this book. We have not yet conducted a, a proper auction among the book clubs, but we've got twenty-five, dollars no matter what. And in a very unusual arrangement, this agent for this book, who is one of the tough and very good and strong agents around town, somehow because uh, he was talking at Frankfurt or whatever, sold the German rights to this. So there's, we know there's some kind of interest out there. To us? <laughs> no. <laughs> you mean book in German? <laughs> no, no. How we about the Italian rights? <laughs> Those are still available if you would like to. <laughs> Irene, I, I'm wondering if on a book like this you'd like to try to sell the reprint rights 
before we publish? What do you think? Very quick, yes. <laughs> well, um, You want to hear some more? Uh, yeah, I want, I'd actually like to hear some more. Uh, well, how did you all like this book? What do you think? How did we, I mean, how do we feel about this yeah. book? Do we feel we have, um, it's, that it's risky? Do you want me to go out it's quick and amortize? It's a terrific read. It's really a very strong. I think there's nobody here who will disagree with me on that. What but do you think? I think it's a really tough sell. I think we've all had experience with books like this that sound terrific, that read wonderfully, that don't work. And you've got all sorts of problems. If the first serial is not done very carefully, you're going to give too much away. Yeah, that's what I was going to, Carol, exactly. Well, the agent is someone we've worked with a lot and who is prepared to be very cooperative. Indeed, the one thing that he doesn't have total control over, obviously, is the Times, because this man has worked for the Times. But he has quite strong connections at Newsweek and Time, and there is a possibility that we get some first serial there. And if not, uh, we're virtually guaranteed good off-book page publicity on it because the story has such news value and because the agent has very good connections. But there has to be something in that book that goes well beyond the newspaper headlines that occurred when the crime happened. Yeah, how long well, ago was that? Well, you remember, this was two years ago. The author has been doing a lot of digging and searching through digging the of family the records so many, and interviewing so the sister many and other people in, in the, the community. Is it well, the kind of digging <laughs> that would That's be? You wouldn't want to rule that out of the category, <laughs> would you? The kind of investigative reporting that might make oh, a there will be more. Story. There will be absolutely, absolutely. Because that could make a big difference um, in terms of regular interviews. You know, further on down the line, when you're sending that author out on tour, the TV stations really are going to be less interested in the author than they are going to be in the killer, <laughs> and you can't often produce. Well, he is a very good speaker. He has been on the lecture circuit. He, this is something he has been doing since before he did this piece, actually. The killer. No, the, <laughs> the author. We'll be taking questions when we're done, okay? Unless it's but desperate. he's still telling somebody else's story, and that's a problem. I'm having a lot of problems with reprint on this book. Uh, they're telling me this is old news. I mean, uh, Nick's done a good job, but there's nothing... He hasn't found anything new. It's not like uh, uh, he was originally sympathetic with. No, 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 no. Well, I mean, no. That I'm running into a lot of resistance. It's sort of like you know, this is old news. It all happened two years ago. Well, but you could read this almost as if it were a novel. It's not so much the unfolding of the case as it is well, that's the kind how of family that's how relationships and what all goes into it. How could Fate. a son kill his father? Fate, I, so hate, I hate to interrupt you, and I, and I know you love this book, and I know you've worked on this book, and I know somehow in a weak moment I and everybody else wanted to buy this book, but we've got very big problems on it, and I think we've got to actually pay very cautiously. You should grab the 25000 from the book club. We've got that. Yeah. We've got that. We've got that. that. Um, you think I, I think should sell it early? Probably, uh, sell it early if you can, but I think we need you, most probably, with Carol, to produce a break. We need a break, or most probably, we shouldn't play this book as big uh, as, frankly, the $75,000 we paid for it uh, is. I can just see the copies that we print sitting there on the shelves <laughs> in, the, in the warehouse. Uh, some of them won't even get out of the warehouse. They'll come back quickly. Uh, I'm, I'm scared to death. 
Well, you, you say you're charging Carol and me with this. What do you think about the agent? What, what should the agent be doing here? Do, does it matter to us what the well, agent I, well, does? Well, I don't, I don't know. Uh, did the agent give us the first serial right? Yeah, right. Does, she, does he or, or she have it? Or is the agent uh, doing the first serial right? Well, the agent has made an arrangement whereby we can control the timing of first serial. But Guess who gets the money? But who's selling Well, the agent will be selling them, but he'll be, he'll be in very close touch with us. You mean for $75,000 we didn't get first serial? <laughs> it was a very tough auction, Irene. We all wanted the book. <laughs> well, look, we don't have to look in the past. We bought this book. Uh, uh, we sort of love it. We've got to do something for it. Uh, we're scared to death. And um, the first thing I do is let the agent know that we've got a problem. And part of the problem is that the agent has failed. Uh, there is no first serial sale. We're inbound well, galleys maybe. now. Well, we're inbound galleys now. That's what you told us at the beginning yes, of this. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there is no first serial sale. And one of the things we might think about doing is putting it in next year's list, putting it in the fall rather than the spring, because we need a break. We need an idea. We're, we've been sitting here for weeks, and we still don't have an idea. <laughs> Are you suggesting, then, that we send out our catalog with a big postponed stamp across this Well, book? you've done it before, and I've done it before. But do you think this will hurt the book? Uh, I think nothing's worse than publishing the book without an idea. Well, have we so we haven't sold it yet. This is prior to sales conference. That's right. Yeah, as long as we haven't meeting. sold it yet, we could. You say it's remarkable. We've got to have something happen either off the book page or maybe we need a, a little bit more work on a film deal or television series. We just don't have a handle. If we were to go ahead with it now, with just these facts having fallen into place, how many copies could we get out on it? I want to know how many will come back. Well, let's start with how many go out, then we'll talk about how many come back. Which, for anybody who's not familiar with this terminology, means what uh, is commonly referred to as how many copies are sold is really how many copies have been shipped to bookstores and wholesalers or whatever who all buy these things on consignment, which means they can send them right on back. And it's only any number of months later, many months later sometimes, that a publisher even knows how many books were actually sold. And as Peter says, we could, we could get out, say, 50,000 copies and 40,000 could come back in the, in the uh, hair-raising case. But figures up to 40, 50, and even 60,000 returns are not, percent returns are not unheard of. Am I right? Absolutely right. Well, what would we get at on this book, going in with this kind of shaky position that we've established? I say we do it next fall. But what if thing is, things aren't any better I'm not sure then? Yeah, it, it all depends on what we have to work with. If we have to work with exactly what we have to work with now, I don't think an idea is going to save it. I think it has to be gen within the book itself. If there isn't something there, then we have to regard it in a different way. I mean, in a way, I'm hearing two different things. I hear Irene saying that everyone says there's nothing new in it, and I hear you saying there's He's done a lot of investigative reporting and has come up with stuff that would might make a 60-minute piece or something like that. I think we need to get the case back in the news somehow. Uh, two years. I mean, for example, did he collect enough information to possibly retry, or are there extenuating circumstances that weren't known at that time? Well, this would be more by way of explaining what all happened. I, I don't think this is going to be a groundbreaking law case. 
Well, then I don't think it you're going to get a great Let, Let's say, let's say there's an appeal that's going to that, that, that's get into the courts in, in six months. Is that worth postponing it for? Yes, the boy, the, boy, the boy is in prison. The boy is in prison? Well, that's to handle. Maybe, maybe we try to interest the journals, journali journalists in interviews with the boy in prison. We've got to make something happen. I think if we have some more time, particularly you, Faith, because you believe in this book so much, I think you will think of something. But let's say. <laughs> but let's say. Or what? <laughs> let's say it's next fall and we're in exactly the same situation. Right. I think we, ha uh, we have to take the medicine. Uh, we have to bite the bullet. This book is not going to happen. We have got to limit our risks and we've got to blame the agent again. <laughs> well, that's a problem. This is not an agent we'd like to be on the wrong side of. Uh, okay, worst case. What do we, how many books do we print? How many do we hope to get out? This is a book that could easily sell eight to 10,000 copies and no more. I think it's a 15 to 20 print. I'd think 12, 15, 14. Yeah, yeah we shoot, shoot high. M m maybe tell the sales reps that we're looking for an advance somewhere in the 15,000 range, but we have our fingers crossed and realistically think they're gonna come in at somewhat fewer than that, maybe 10 to 12. And. Uh, let the chips fall where they may. If, if the publicity comes through, then uh, having the wonderful production department that uh, I'm assured that we do, we can turn it around and and, and change our fortunes. And we'll have three different jackets. Three different book. jackets. How about <laughs> 10,000 different jackets? Um, are we going to be putting money behind this? Well, frankly, I am just so angry at this meeting. Uh, I mean, we've been talking about this book for three or four months, and you want to spend money, but. Uh, sometimes one of the best ways to market books is with ideas. We haven't had them. Uh, ideas are a cop-out. Uh, money is a cop-out because <laughs> unless you spend an awful lot of money, it's extremely unlikely to happen. This is uh, not one for a small advertising campaign. It's for an enormous advertising campaign. Or I think we've got to take our medicine. So you're saying sort of all or nothing. And what do we say when the agent comes to us and says, if only you had spent some more, we could have gotten more books sold? Well, he's what will we say? say anyway. He will say that. He's, you likely know he to, he's likely to say it. We'll disagree and get on to the next thing. Okay. Order another drink. The next, <laughs> the next thing is, <laughs> this is a literary biography, a book called simply Salinger by Marlene Hartman. What is it? <laughs> 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 oh, you've heard of her. She's, uh, she's a Princeton professor, quite distinguished, a poet, a critic, the author of that well-received Jane Austen biography. In fact, we didn't publish that, but we were told on, on pretty good authority that that book sold 12,000 copies and had some course adoptions. There were three printings. This is obviously the much longed for biography of J.D. Salinger. <coughs> it's been 10 years in the writing. Authorized. It, it is authorized. He has cooperated with it. He will not he will not promote it. He will not go on shows, but, <laughs> but he has. So, I mean, you do biographies of dead people. This, uh, this shouldn't be an insuperable obstacle. It is still the first book about him. How are we going to play this one? 
We paid $20,000 for it. The book will probably come in at 288 pages. It's quite manageable. What's, and happening, she did tell what's happening to selling her sales and paperback now? Ba Bantam publishes uh, women selling her. Maybe, maybe we can find out what, uh, uh, is it a up curve? Is it a down curve? Um, what's happening? I think, I think there's a steady, steady curve. Steady curve. <laughs> <laughs> that's like a dead heat. No, that's it's a, uh, I think we're in the cat's are those seat adoption, with this book. Are those adoption sales or uh, trade sales? Do we know that? Well, that's a good question. I, I, I think I'll have to find out. I think it's, it's, it's people who are buying the book not because they want to want to read it, but because they have to, because their professors grew up in the 50s and want their students now to read it, so the students by obligation take take a copy, but it's a phony sale. So the same people, and only the professors are gonna be interested in the biography, and even the professors may not be, because we're writing, what we have here is a biography of somebody that wrote some wonderful short stories in a novel and then locked his door 20 years ago. You don't Except think people want Just because there's been so little written and learned about Salinger, because there's no competition, because this is something pretty exciting, I think it has a pretty good chance. I think the review attention is going to be amazing. This yep. is a sort Me of mystery too. This is really yep. exciting. Does the book reveal anything uh, surprising? What <laughs> would surprise you about Salinger? <laughs> that he was alive and no, uh, <laughs> that he had uh, something other than an extremely reclusive, quiet life. Well, you've read the book, Roger. What do you think? I think he had an extremely quiet, inclusive <laughs> life. <laughs> oh, but doesn't it, don't you feel it gives you some insight into the childhood that produced this random It was a quiet, reclusive childhood. No, I think it's, a, it, it's uh, the book um, isn't exciting. I think what is exciting is some information about this mystery man for the first time. And I think we've got to jump on that very quickly. I think it'll get an enormous amount of review attention. Uh, I think a lot of people will feel they have to read the book. Uh, and I think some people may be bored once they've uh, had the experience. Mark, Mark, we're, we're trying to decide here what we're going to print and what we're going to spend on it. What is the best library sale that a book ever had? Because this book, I, I suspect, will be in every small town, large, ta uh, l large city library. Uh, most probably a lot of high school libraries uh, actually in the book. What's the best sale one can manage out of the library market? I, I really can't answer your question, but I, I couldn't anticipate a, a library sale of more than, uh, let's say, 4,000 copies. You know, it's hard to tell. W one of the means by which books get sold to libraries is through wholesalers, and the wholesalers do not segregate out their library sales vis-a-vis -vis their sales to the trade. <laughs> no, you got it good enough. 4,000 is a good number. 4,000. What do you mean, Roger? Jump on it. I think we want to, all the marketing plans for the book, the publicity, I mean, if, this is, if the author is uh, at all mobile, I think this is a good tour book because I think people want, want to know about the, the man. I think we want to make everything happen very quickly. I think we want to, the reviews, the tour, and whatever advertising we do to happen in a reasonably short period of time. Don't spread it out. No? Thelma, what are you going to do? 
<laughs> we we just like agreed that. that's not a good tour book. You don't think it's a good tour book? No, I don't. Because you basically, again, have the problem of somebody talking about somebody else. But if everybody's the author, curious about this. Everybody's book. curious, but there has to be something in the book. If there's something in the book to talk about, that's something different. If, in fact, we led a boring, reclusive life, you get fabulous review attention, but the reviews are all going to say, J.D. Salinger led a boring, reclusive life, and you're not going to get much mileage out of those reviews. Even uh, Carol, uh, why, did, why did this Marjorie, uh, this Princess Professor, why did she get uh, access to him? Uh -huh. He's a very secretive man <laughs> and uh, <laughs> authorized okay, biography as well. <laughs> maybe that's, maybe maybe that's, that's the, the answer. And maybe that's what the talk Only show host knows. will get out of her. <laughs> Well, I, I only know what's in the book that you May, Maybe, maybe she, you know, you could do an interview with her and people, you know, maybe Vanity Fair or People Magazine could do something like that. How was she able to uh, break this? Well, well I think it makes a better sense there than it does on morning t talk shows where a lot of people aren't even going to know who Salinger is. So what can we do with this book? What can we ship? What can we spend on it? Irene, are you going to yeah. get a, a club oh on yeah. this? Well, I th yeah, we'll get a BOMC alternate. Um, they'll give us $3,500. And I'm also assuming that uh, because um, uh, several of uh, Salinger's books are uh, adoption books, uh, lots of uh, uh, kids in schools have to write reports. Uh, I think there's most probably uh, a surprisingly large mass market sale, or maybe we want to do it ourselves as a trade paperback, but I think maybe Bantam would spring to some very big money on this, because uh, I, I think the sales are something on the order of six, seven hundred thousand copies a year all selling his mm. books together, and I think a lot of them are really adoption sales, rather than people just picking them up uh, for enjoyment. It is 20, 25 years after the fact. Uh, maybe we can spring some money loose there. I think if we don't get any money, if we don't get that kind of money from Bantam, I think we should definitely, does, does our house have its own trade paperback? We don't want to get into that. Now, we're running a little late, I'm afraid. So we've, uh, let's just set, well set a print run on this and then hear from Letter the print. folks out here. Yeah, I think so, unless anybody's dying to say something just now, because it is uh, well hot and I, I, I think something like 30,000 copies is uh, um, a very, very good figure. It's a nice and, start. Um, I think it's most probably right. Terrific. Now, um, we think it's a little high, but we'll go yeah. for it. <laughs> Who would argue with him? <laughs> with the caution, once again, that these were all fake books, I think it's time to hear from the people out there. I know there's at least one person who's burning with a question. I will ask everybody, please, to go to the standing mic in the aisle, partly because this is being taped, but even courtesy to each other. I was wondering how you would go about getting a press release for a book that you're thinking of writing and doing the actual press work yourself, even though you're not an actual press member. Carol? I'm not sure I understand the question. A book that is not yet written? Self-published. A 
book that, in other words, that you're publishing privately? Or that I haven't been accepted by any publishing house, but I'd like to tell people that maybe I'll be able to write a book and that I'm a so-called press representative. It's kind of far-fetched, and I was wondering if such a thing is ever done, because you don't want to really invest in a thing you really don't know about. Well, if you've never done it before, you d chances are you'd do better with some professional advice, and that's going to cost money. But uh, it's, that's kind of a hard question to answer. You'd either have to get somebody to help you with something like that, to give you a few guidelines. There do or exist. Hire a freelance there do exist a couple of publications that I, I don't know what they charge or how they go about it, but who send out groups of synopses of books. I don't know if they're still in business. I've seen a couple of them. Do you know the ones I mean? No, it's I don't sort of actually. Announcement of works in progress. You might have a look and see if there are those. There's somebody at the mic now. Why don't you be next, okay? I mean, this is very interesting, but in my very limited experience, there have been one or two points which haven't been touched. Number one, the time of publication. I, I think if you, all your efforts, if you, it seems to me there might be a difference if you do it in November or in February. The other point is if you are talking about auxiliary rights. Now, I know about one case where the publisher was sitting on his hands simply because he hoped to sell the, sell it, sell the movie rights and was satisfied with it. And then I, a general question, which you probably can't answer. Do you really think it makes a difference if you put a full-page ad in the New York Times? Has you ever bought a book because you saw an ad? It's a good question, Many I think. good questions. I, I, think, I think you're quite right in saying that the time of publication is important, and, and we really were just remiss in not discussing it. Suffice to say that in a regular marketing meeting, the question would have come up and been discussed as to whether full-page ads in the Times sell books. I'm not sure of the answer to that myself. Authors certainly like to see them there. Agents like to see them there. I think they probably do sell books. I think consumers quite often read ads, forget having seen the ad, and when asked later about a book, think they've read a review of it. Yes. Yes, there's a great deal of confusion on the part of the consumer as to what it, exactly it was that they <coughs> saw about that book. There's a curious chemistry between review attention and uh, advertising, and uh, although one can't articulate it, uh, I think um, advertising by itself, unless it's on a thoroughgoingly commercial book, uh, uh, for which that's virtually the only way to get the book known, uh, I think is a, a rather dubious way uh, to make something work. Um, uh, I think it's that curious chemistry that one's after of review attention uh, preceded by a little bit of advertising and then perhaps a lot of advertising if the review attention has been marvelous. Yes, uh, we had someone who had been recognized who didn't get up no, to I the microphone. No, that's okay, just stay there and we'll do you next, okay? My book was published by a major house October 12th. That was the pub date. I think it's dying. And not, beca not because there's anything wrong with the book. I think the book is good. I've also had a lot of experience on radio, television, lecturing, and so forth. But the publisher is doing absolutely nothing. One, um, one interesting fact in what you mentioned here tonight is the fact that they have, for the first time in ages, a, a bestseller. 
it's not my book, as I say. I don't know what to do under these circumstances. It's heartbreaking. I, I really don't know what to do. I've been doing a hell of a lot on my own to help move it along. Um, I made my own press party. I'm making another autograph party. I have Liz Smith may be putting a notice in, the, um, in her column, a one-liner about it. Um, President Carter is re uh, reviewing it, and so is Mario Cuomo and so forth. But it's like beating my head against the wall. And any suggestions you have, I would very much appreciate it. What would you have them do? Who? Oh, Your publishers. I don't s uh, first of all, they haven't got me in. Got no, me what, in. what would you want them to do? I want them to uh, send me on tour. I've deliberately left everything in abeyance and I told them this. Um, through January, I've not taken any commitments of any kind, attended any business so that I could publicize the book. They're not doing that. They got the review copies out late. Um, I want them to spend money on the book and to utilize my talents. In, in a sense, this is the question we've anticipated and the question that we've been waiting for. Carol, what, what do you say if, if an author says, I'd like to be sent on tour? Well, it's a, in some cases, it's a difficult question. I don't know what, your, what book you've written. I don't know you. I don't know what your experience has been exactly. We make our decisions as to who to send on tour on the basis of how well we think that author will be in the media. But not only that, we also make it on the basis of how many copies we're printing and therefore how much money we have to spend on a particular book, whether or not we can afford a national tour. We make it on the basis of how well we think we can book that author once we make that decision. Could, would you elaborate uh, on that a little bit? Uh, can I just say something? Uh, the decision was not the publicity. Uh, the publicity director is not fighting the decision. The marketing director decided mm. long ago the book should come out in trade. It came out in hardcover. And he keeps referring to that over and over again. In other words, he's got something, I think, against the book in a sense, too. And I said to him, that's done already. Now, the publicity director did want to set up a tour and spend a lot of money on publicizing the book. But the marketing director actually sent me a very nasty letter and a note saying he will make all the decisions and so forth. Roger, so would you like that job? <laughs> Over and out. Which job are we talking about? Um, the only thing I can suggest uh, in that kind of a case is to try to communicate with this person. If you feel strongly that your book is promotable and saleable, I think you should either by phone better still in person, if all else fails in writing, uh, try to overcome this person's prejudice. Roger, I have been on the phone every few days with him, with other members of the staff too. I have led them by their nose in one way or another. The, the uh, book has a tremendous market in corporations. I have supplied them with lists because I'm quite well known in corporations. But I'm saying it's like a one woman campaign. There I is one alternative that I can think of, and this will depend entirely on your financial situation. <laughs> if, well, but I mean, this is something you have to consider. If the House, for reasons that I don't quite understand, refuses to do the kind of publicity you think the book merits, and you have the money to hire a freelance publicist, someone can do a publicity campaign for you, and you will then see whether, in fact, that results in, in sales. Assuming that they have yes. books out in the store. But I, I hope that, that your experience and the responses here demonstrate to you that, in a certain sense, we are all up against the same thing. It's not as if we're in a, a we-they here. 
your publicity Certainly. director wanted to do it, was unable to. But I do have to remind you that although this is called a clinic, we can't sort of treat individual cases. All right, thank you. Thank you. No, that's not what you want to do here. <laughs> Next. Okay, I guess I came here this evening an optimistic novice. And um, I have some questions I heartily hope that you can answer truthfully. I have been told that um, if you're not known and you send your manuscript in, it will not even be read in all probability. It will just be discarded. Is that true? That is not true, but that is not the, the area that we've been discussing tonight. But it, okay. it is not overall true. It may in some cases be true. Right. I know that. Um, what I also gleaned is that first writers are offered much, much lower um, prices than known writers. What is the highest amount that was ever paid to a writer on a first book that you know of from your com one of your companies? that you thought was really quality book? Uh, if that's something that you say you gleaned from this, uh, it's, we had a couple of setup cases. It right. doesn't necessarily follow. And if you remember, one of the writers was a first book writer and got mm -hmm. $75,000. I don't, I don't think it really signifies here because it depends. Each book is its own case, which is one of the problems about ever trying to talk in any sort of generalities about publishing. Um, and I don't know if this is a place to ask, but I will anyway. Um, is there a particular publisher who deals with adult fairy tales? Any or none? Anybody? No. Anyone also, that I mean, we, we speak of? We are an imaginary publisher here and, and are speaking only as that. Well, that's not what I understood the topic to be from the advertisement. That's why I asked the questions that I did. The way the paper read, it seemed you were really going to cover and represent several aspects of publishing, so I don't think that these questions are out of line. Um, would anyone care to field one? At the risk okay. of turning into a pessimistic okay. novice, novice <laughs> I, I really think that being a novice, that you could use an intermediary who is less of a novice, an agent, who would know, given the nature of your book, which houses would be more interested in it, and the range of prices paid can be enormous. Scruples was the first novel, and that's the other extreme of some of the things we've been discussing now. Thank you. I thought of two sources in the reference to the imaginary books. One, uh, a biography of someone like Salinger, uh, you mentioned that it's uh, 20 years uh, since he's published, but Sal the book um, A Catcher in the Rye is a classic in the same way that you'd say, well, there's no point in having a biography of Dickens because it hasn't published for 50 to 60 years. Uh, I happen to know that people abroad, and I wanted to address this to the person who was uh, working in England, that uh, they have written to me to send copies of the book uh, for students uh, for example, in the Soviet Union, who are studying English. Uh, they think of it as a classic. So I've been wondering whether that market uh, would be uh, saleable uh, and worth uh, an effort. Well, the book is quite widely published all over the world. Uh, um, but I'm sure you're right. Uh, as a consequence of that fact, uh, there would be uh, some significant uh, uh, 
perhaps not uh, in terms of the advance in each country, but I suspect there'd be quite a large number of foreign rights deals. In other words, the book would be likely translated in quite a large number of countries. Uh, the other uh, question is uh, uh, relative also uh, to uh, sources that haven't been mentioned. Uh, I got a announcement from a, a publisher, Hayworth, uh, for example, which uh, publishes um, psychological material that somehow also uh, veer, not exactly on the fictional, but uh, rather on popular psychology. For example, they're uh, advertising a volume of homosexual um, extracts from great literature. And I've been wondering whether a book that you say, like uh, the one about uh, the uh, murder, that has so much depth psychology, uh, wouldn't be a source for um, uh, cooperating uh, with uh, one of these uh, publishers of psychological material. Well, thank you. We'll look into that next fall when we publish the book. In reality, so would you uh, can ever? Well, can reality eludes all of us in this instance. What? <laughs> <laughs> I would like to know, just in the, your first hypothetical book, the first novelist, how this author would have fared if he had come out in trade paperback. There are, I think there are pluses and minuses in that. Uh, one plus is that the book will cost less that way, and therefore, theoretically, more people will be able to afford it if it's a kind of first novel that appears that appeals to college-age students, and in this case it sounds like it might since it's a father and son story, um, that might make some sense. On the other hand, from a review standpoint, the review media are still, even though many of them claim not to be, there's still a difference in the way a trade paperback and a, and a hardcover are perceived in terms of books to review. First novel and hardcover is simply more likely to get reviewed at this point. I'm not sure either whether uh, the sales department would be able to distribute that many more copies than uh, what we actually decided to do on that first That's novel. I, I think they might distribute fewer because the wholesale orders would be less. Uh, we we set a quite uh, uh, impressive figure uh, for this first novel uh, of 12,500 copies. And I'm not convinced that although the price of the trade paperback would be uh, quite a bit lower, perhaps $5 lower, $6 lower, I'm not convinced that the sales department, initially at least, would be able to distribute that many more copies. The income to the publisher would be that much less, and this would have some effect, uh, a depressive effect, in fact, on the marketing monies that would be spent uh, for the book. And the and income, income to the, to the author, author would be less, too. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Now, every book, I think, as Faith said, uh, is different. There, are, uh, If the book was extremely unusual and it had some special handle, um, uh, 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 you, you can do something quite remarkable with a trade paperback. Uh, 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 that has happened uh, uh, to, let us say, Tom Robbins' book. Uh, it happened to uh, uh, James Coetzee's book, Waiting for the Barbarians. But in, in, uh, in the case of Tom Robbins, it wasn't the first novel. <coughs> Uh, in the case of Coetzee, uh, there were some very special factors about it. And his next it. book is being done in hardcover. That's right. Uh, and the next book is being done in hardcover, which is a, a very, very good point. It was a, it was a good handle. Uh, uh, it, it was a very brave thing, in, in, in fact, of the paper.
take it back and to insist that it be done that way. But uh, by and large, I, uh, I would have thought that uh, old habits change very slowly. Uh, uh, and uh, maybe the way we went, 12,500 uh, in hardback, uh, was a, uh, quite brave of this company. Certainly in terms of the advance, whether it, whether it affected the eventual sale of the book or not is, is a separate question. By advance, Roger, you mean the, the amount of books that, uh, that Mark's going to be able to put in the bookstore. Uh, what about um, lending the book prestige and getting perhaps, I said, what about uh, uh, book club sale lending the book prestige and perhaps But I, we did take, remember we took the book club sale. It was quality paperback book club. But that would have hurt uh, an eventual paperback sale. Not necessarily. And we did accept I was I was throwing it op open to my colleagues and asking them if they I thought I should if they thought uh -huh. I should take it. It might hurt the mass market paperback sale, but we took that risk because we said we've got to get something and happening, yeah, something to that. talk about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But what about a regular book club sale? Would that enhance a paperback sale? It is a regular book club sale. Oh, I thought you said it was a paperback. But it's part of Book of the Month Club. I see. Okay, thank you. Thank you. We've got two more people waiting in line to ask questions. That was right. Three. We have three, and then three I think we should cut it off because yeah. it's getting late, and and everyone is invited to go downstairs to the bar, have a drink, and ask some more informal questions. I, this I'm not closing, and I know I have to do announcements, but let's let's limit the questions from the floor to the people who are waiting just now. As an imaginary publishing firm, let's say your name was the Surefire Bestseller, Bestseller List Company, Inc., if you were approached with a humorous book to retail at $4.95 with the cover design, with the dumpster design, with an intelligent marketing plan already intact, and tentative approval of 150,000 sales, non-bookstore sales already, already tentatively approved, what kind of a percentage would you, as the uh, Surefire Bestseller List Company, Inc., offer uh, an author of such a book? Were you listening at the beginning when the ground rules were laid the, out? I missed the first oh, I'm sorry, minutes. because we did say that we would just be talking about <laughs> written books, and maybe someone will make a deal with you afterward. Oh, but okay. but we, we just we we limited ourselves because you can see how long it took us to talk about four I, I sort missed, of regular I books. First. Okay. I'm sorry. Someone will talk to you afterward. Thank you. Okay. I found this very informative, and what I'd like you to do for me is pretend that you were me, and that now you know what goes on behind closed doors. You are a young author. You have a hot book that you want to sell, but you want to sell it to the right place, and you really would like to know what you should look out for. Should you have something written into the contract about publicity? Should you ask for X amount of books that you will be insured would be sold? What should you do now that you know what goes on behind the scenes? 
go into another business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. So, no, somebody will answer you. Who? You want an editor who you really believe in, who will fight for you within the house so that some of the uh, issues you heard discussed here, as an advocate, you're not going to be there to fight out these battles, so you need a buddy. And uh, 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 sometimes you can't be so choosy. You're very glad that an editor has said, I want to publish your book. But to the extent that uh, you can forge a relationship, literary, personal, anything, with that editor, that's, that, that, that's your strongest advocate in the house. That editor has put his or her career, I don't want to make it too dramatic, but uh, uh, certainly uh, risked something within that house to say, I want to publish your book. Peter, my next question then is, what advice would you give to such an editor? <laughs> how then does one make it through the house with this book one cares about so desperately? But that's what we were talking about. It's just precisely not. I mean, at, at some houses, yes, but uh, at others, no. I think, I, I, think right, I think in a right house, even if the editor of that book is not at the meeting, there are ways. You talk to people all through the day in an office. You grab somebody for five minutes. There are a hundred ways, unless uh, the, the publishing company is some kind of machine. There's a way to talk to people within within a company. Yes, that's true. Not with the first book, you're going to be very limited in what you can demand until you have some kind of track record that you can point to and which creates a kind of power for you. I, th I think my own, my response to you is to network among friends that you have who can tell you about positive publishing experiences that they've had and possibly, um, reviews, you go into the bookstore, you think this book has been, you'll notice when, let's say, a first novel is published effectively, as far as you feel, and then pursue it along those lines. Uh, yes, that's but very I think important. I look think in the stores, look in the, in the book reviews. Look I for the house I that I does the job you like. I, I think if, if you approach it with strictures and provisions, as if you're going to outpage, I mean, in, in other words, if you approach it in an adversarial position, like I'm going to demand a first printing of, a minimum first printing of X, assuming you could get it, and as Carol suggested, it's unlikely, and that you have a built-in advertising and promotion budget, I think you'd, you'd, you'd run up against a lot of opposition in finding a publisher who would publish your, your book well and to your satisfaction. question. When you see a nonfiction book on sort of esot some esoteric subject brought out by a commercial house and you figure it's not selling a lot of copies, is that usually a mistake or is it the case where the publisher just was able to get it cheap and it was worth bringing out a very small press run? run? Is that kind of thing going An on? An esoteric subject may be a terrific seller because it may be uh, something where the sales effort can be targeted by direct mail, by coupon response, uh, by putting the book uh, uh, through a network of specialized wholesalers. Uh, um, there, uh, uh, what's 
seems to be esoteric in the sense of general trade publishing may be in fact one of the strongest, uh, uh, what may be actually quite a strong book. Uh, for another reason as well, within the economics of publishing, one of the most difficult things to do is to pick what quantity, as you heard uh, here, what quantity to print and how to price. Once you know precisely what the market is, which is sometimes the case with something that's esoteric, you're really on your way. Um, I can only um, give, add consensual validation to that. For example, <coughs> David Godin gave a very good example at Breadloaf this summer of a book he published on duck decoys, and everyone laughed, and he said, uh, don't laugh. Um, we put a $35 price on that book. If we'd put a $75 price on that book, we would have sold as many copies as we did, which was considerable. Another example was um, a book having to do with some aspect of yachts. Some, you know, uh, obviously people who can afford to buy yachts are not going to turn their nose down at a twenty-seven fifty <laughs> cover price. So it's a discrete, targeted audience, and uh, it may sound, it may seem sort of obscure to you, but I'm sure there's been a lot of marketing behind it. It seems reassuring. Thank you. Good luck. I'm dying to know what the rest of the Are you doing a book on duck decoys? Oh, think about it. Okay, the rest will do Before you all run down to get your drinks, I would like to make two announcements of future events sponsored by Penn. One is Monday, the 14th of November, a week from this coming Monday, in the Penn Conversations with Distinguished Foreign Writers series. Amos Oz, the, whom you all know, uh, the, what? Uh, the publisher, it's not, it doesn't say here, Irene, that the publisher is Harcourt Brace and Yovanovitch. <laughs> I guess it is, yes, whose most recent book is called In the Land of Israel. And we'll the editor is sitting in the second row. Oh, there <laughs> she is, yes. Franca? Uh, but sh she, won't, she won't be on stage at that with Amos Oz, but Arthur A. Cohen will, who is a writer and former publisher. It will be Monday, November 14th at 8 p.m. at top of the park, the fifth floor of the Loeb Student Center at NYU, down the street, 566 LaGuardia Place. Unlike this event, it will not be free, but it will probably give you value for money at $3 for Penn members and $4 for non-members. A reception back here at this building will follow. <laughs> Excuse me, and then on December 1st, a rare unexpected event, an evening with Brazilian writers, João Ubaldo Ribeiro, Ignacio de Leolo Brandeo, oh, you know him, Aguiar Adonias Filo, and Narcio Sousa, whom many people probably do know, will read in Portuguese and in English from their work. There will be a reception with Brazilian music afterward. This will be held at the New York City Cultural Affairs Building, 2 Columbus Circle at 7.30 p.m., December 1st. Now, thank you all for being here, and come meet us downstairs. Thank you.